This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is inside our palatial tent. Three and a half hours uh, since we dug ourselves in. And as you can see, all is quite well. That is University of Colorado scientist Ted Scambos on one of his many trips to the coldest continent. He'll head back to Antarctica later this year to focus on a glacier that hasn't gotten much attention. Scambos has a message for the world. With climate change, the Thwaites Glacier could have a catastrophic effect on sea levels. Ted, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me on. You call this the wild card of sea level rise. Why? Yeah, the problem is that Thwaites has this big potential for accelerating and thinning and pushing a lot of the ice that's on Antarctica out into the ocean rapidly, possibly starting within the next few decades. This is really the area that has that possibility of suddenly changing the game in terms of sea level rise rates. And just so I make sure I understand the process, the ice would be pushed off into the ocean. It would presumably melt in that environment, and that would have the effect of rising sea levels. Yeah, pushed off, more squeezed out under its own weight. And then, yes, as soon as the ice enters the ocean from areas that were above sea level before, that's already done the job. Just like getting into a bathtub, that iceberg has already splashed the water up Mm. uh, higher around the coastlines of the world. Let alone the melting. Let alone the melting eventually, which has its own effects, you know, in terms of freshening the water and changing circulation in some places. Who do you think would be hardest hit? I I guess I think of low-lying areas, uh, islands, coastlines. You're right. Absolutely. Of course, low-lying areas would be the worst. But there's a catch in this, and that is that, um, perhaps ironically, it's the northern hemisphere that suffers the most if Antarctica loses a lot of ice. That's kind of a funny situation having to do with how changing where mass is, where all these billions of tons of ice are stored, actually rearranges the gravitational field on Earth just a little bit. But when you think about having just a few centimeters or 10 centimeters of sea level rise, um, that is just a little bit. And that sloshing back away from Antarctica because there's less mass there, there's less ice there. The biggest effect is actually far away from Antarctica in the northern hemisphere. So the coastlines of the U.S. and Europe, parts of China and Japan, are the ones that are most affected by loss of ice in Antarctica. Fascinating. And I think to the layman like me, totally unexpected. If you and I were at Thwaites right now, and you actually will be much sooner, I think, than I will be, uh, would we be able to perceive with our naked eyes this kind of change? I think we'd have to be there a while. On any given day, what you'd notice is that the ice is very fractured. And you could see that it has the mark of an area that has been flowing and twisting and shearing a lot. But on a given day, you probably wouldn't notice too much unless you were there when a crevasse actually popped open because of the stresses in the ice. Over time, over a year or two, there's no doubt that you'd see a a big change in terms of the surface lowering by 6, 10 feet or so. Um, And of course, where you were standing would be two or three miles downstream the next year. Talk to the person who says, yeah, but Ted... The climate has always changed. We've gone to ice ages and we've been out of them. We have. But this time we're pushing ourselves. We're already in a warm period and we're pushing 
climate in the direction of even warmer conditions. And what's more is we're driving it. In the past, these changes were very slow. Now we're changing climate on the scale of human generations. Climate is already as warm as it's ever been in the past few hundred thousand years. And the only thing that is different now is that sea level hasn't yet caught up with the levels that it was at in those earlier warm periods. And the thought is it's going to. And one of the ways it's going to do that is by having Thwaites Glacier and other glaciers around it put trillions of tons of ice into the ocean because they're no longer stable with the climate that we have. Is there anything that can be done to reverse this, save dramatic reductions in greenhouse gases? There's a lot of discussion right now about whether or not there are approaches to actually slow things down. And in general, the opinion of most of the people that look at these is that they're likely to be very expensive. Um, They're likely to be temporary. For example, uh, one of the things that's been talked about, a glacier uh, in Antarctica, especially one that's flowing fast, slides over a bed that actually has water flowing in a very narrow, thin film underneath the glacier. Hmm. And that water allows it to flow much faster than it would if it were frozen to the bedrock. So if you were to drill on the glacier and pump out, extract that water and reduce the pressure, you'd make the glacier grind against the bedrock. Slowing it down, in essence. That's right. But I need to set the scale of the problem uh, for everyone. First of all, Thwaites Glacier is about as wide, where it's flowing into the ocean, about as wide as the distance between Denver and Fort Collins in Colorado. And then the glacier ice behind it is pretty much the same area as all of Colorado west of I-25. So you put a mile of ice over that entire area, have it flowing out between Fort Collins and, and Denver. That's the scale of the problem. Now... Spending that kind of money to protect us against one or two large glaciers in Antarctica, so far, nothing that I've heard uh, has made enough sense to be the better decision than simply putting all of our efforts into um, adjusting the way we use energy. What's this about enlisting the help of elephant seals on your mission? Yeah, We're using them as uh, natural oceanographers, basically. The idea is to attach some instrument packs to the seals. So elephant seals in particular will dive all the way to the seabed, even if it's a kilometer, a kilometer and a half below the surface, and give a profile as they emerge. The little instrument pack will send out a brief radio signal and tell you all the data about what they've been swimming through on that long journey down to the bed and then back up to the surface. Now, They'll do hundreds of dives in the space of a year. So we get essentially a map every day through time of what the ocean was like in the area around, in this case, Thwaites Glacier. And it's just remarkable. So cost effective. Free labor, Ted. <laughs> well, that, that, that puts a <laughs> interesting spin on it. It seems as though they don't mind. It doesn't seem to inhibit them socially or feeding or in any other way. And yet by riding along with them on their daily life, we get to learn a lot about an area that's really hard to measure otherwise. All right. You're headed down to Antarctica, I think, towards the end of the year. And this is, of course, a place you have been many times and are deeply fascinated by. I wonder if yeah. we, we might wrap up just with, 
you painting a picture of this place for us and of your life while you're there. <laughs> I, I've always been so happy that I wound up in the field that I'm in. First of all, adventure, walking around outdoors and just exploring places that uh, few people had been was always really appealing to me. But Antarctica is, is spectacular in a different way. It's so vast and austere and, and quiet and magnificent. And it's this part of our planet that really hasn't seen much in the way of human activity or, or, or life at all. And you really get a sense of time there, a vast lengths of time that have passed while this ice has been moving and rocks have been emerging from below. It's spectacular. It's humbling. It really reaches into your soul. And I have to say, just about everybody who goes there has some level of that kind of experience, and they want to go back again. It's a magnificent place, a gateway to awe and a sense of, a sense of eternity, really. Thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you very much. Ted Scambos is one of the leaders of an international research project at Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica. He's also a senior research scientist at CU Boulder. Let's talk about a strike. Not the one recently involving Denver Public Schools, though. Fifty years ago, a months-long strike at a carnation and rose factory in Brighton, Colorado, came to an end. After five women chained themselves to a fence, they demanded better wages and better working conditions. It was part of a national wave of floral industry strikes. And this one was exceptional in that it involved mostly Chicanas. Today, we have three of the women who chained themselves to that fence. Lupe Briseño led the movement, and she's on the phone. Hi, Lupe. Well, hello. In the studio with me are Martha Del Real and Rachel Sandoval. Thank you for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Lupe, take us back 50 years. This is the Kitayama Brothers Carnation Plant in Brighton. And after you chained yourselves to the fence, I understand that you were tear-guessed. Yes, very bad, very bad. Your eyes are burning, you're coughing, you're, you're vomited. None of the women had experienced anything like that. We didn't expect anything like that from Wild County, the policemen, because we were not doing anything wrong. This is just a demonstration to prove it, that we're in the right to do this. We're our American, and we're not supposed to be treated this way. Rachel, you were pregnant at the time. Yes, I was pregnant at the time with my, my, my daughter. We didn't know this was going to happen. We just wanted to get to, us women here to, to get on the strike and get chained up. And we didn't know that the, the cops were going to come out and, and do the spray on us. Did the tear gas affect your baby? A little bit. It came. I, I came out okay with it. And the baby was fine, too? Mm-hmm. She came out fine. Well, that morning, it was early, and it was a fog. We could barely see, and of course, two men came up. They tied us on each end. There was two padlocks, one on each end, and they wrapped the chain around each one of us. Went around a couple of times to make sure it was a heavy. It was a heavy chain. And so, These are obviously men who are helping you yeah, in this case? They, yeah, there were two men that were really supported. They were probably the husbands of Rachel and, and Lupe, but they wrapped it around, they locked us up, they threw the, the key away because they didn't want nobody to find them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, before you know it, I heard these horses, click-clock, click-clock. 
it's kind of scary, these big horses with these policemen on it. And then afterwards, I heard some sirens as it started getting a little brighter from the fog. They came forward, and I can hear Mr. Kiriyama say, cut the chains, cut the chains. And so before we knew it, they cut them. But the sad thing about that is that once they cut it, they were heavy, and we were shaking and everything. I don't know if maybe we were scared about what was going to happen. So we fell, and they approached us. I don't know if they thought we were going to do something, but that's when they sprayed us. Mm. That's when they sprayed in. Of course, our eyes got watery, and we were crying. And the only thing I can think of is say, how could you do this? All we were doing is trying to make things better for the people, for the farm workers. I says, why? You know, and why are you doing this? It's not fair. So we did end the strike mainly because there was an, they were going to put an injunction against us. And after seven months and a couple of weeks, it was hard being out there. And January was very, very cold. Well, I want to get more perspective on what led up to that day. Lupe, what were the working conditions like at the Kiriyama plant before the strike? You see, it's too foggy inside the floors are wet because they have to water the carnation plant. A carnation plant can live 10 years with the fertilizer that they give this plant. But then it affects a person because it's wet inside. You, you get allergies. You have to go see the doctor. And you ask for permission to go see the doctor tomorrow or today. And no, you're not going to go because if you go, you're going to lose your job. You want to go see the doctor because my child is sick and I have to take him to the doctor. And they tell you, no, you just do what I tell you to do. And no, 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 I don't go for that. And I talk to these women. We need to organize ourselves. And if it's necessary, we go for a strike. And we did. When they took me into the greenhouse, when they hired me, they took me right into the greenhouse. I seen the beautiful colors of the carnations, and the smells were beautiful. But as time went on, boy, I lost the sense of the beauty of the flowers and the carnation because we had to work on rolls where we cut their roses. There was mud because of the water, the way they watered them. In in these rows. Yeah, we had to work in the water and the mud of these carnations. And we also had to find places where to, when we had lunch break, we had to find a place where it was dry to sit down and eat on the ground. We had two bathrooms for, I think, about 100 people. And for the greenhouse, they would drip. And this is why we would go in dry, and when we come back, we were moist. And that's why people got sick. And that's when I told Lupe, Lupe, I can't work in these conditions no more. When I walked in, I could I could see the beauty of it. But when I seen the ladies and the people that worked there, they had sad faces. They were tired. And so I had become one of them. You know, and I says, I'm going to quit. And she said, don't quit. We're going to organize. We're going to organize. And I had given my a notice to Mr. Kiriyama, and he had already heard about what was going on. So he's, I says, I'm going to stay. And he says, no, I'm letting you go. But I told Lupe, I will be here to support you because mm-hmm. my heart went out to them in those conditions. I said, we will do what we can for them. Now, no. I know that you took this to the state capitol at one point. What did lawmakers tell you about your rights in this fight? We don't come under any law because we're working under a roof. It's the same if you were working in the field, typing onions, carrots, cabbage. You don't have no rights. That's why we carry that flag of Cesar Chavez. 
He is the one that gave us permission to carry the flag of Cesar Chavez being in strike on the grave in California. You also had support from local groups. I think of Corky Gonzalez, who led the Denver-based Chicano Crusade for Justice, um, as well as... Corky Gonzalez gave us a lot of support because some people, you know, some of them are not very happy to see the strikers there. The church got involved, and it surprised a lot of people because you're afraid that something will happen to you. But no. And uh, we have a lot of people, college kids come over from Boulder right. and, and Greeley. The strike lasted for nearly eight months. I wonder if you got frustrated and wanted to give up at any point, Martha. We talked about it. We did get tired. I think we did have feelings, you know, how long shall we keep going? But I'm thankful for Lupe because she's really strong and she cared about the people. What did you eat? Lupe went out and got us a trailer, a little white trailer. And we would bring in some food, and we would warm in there. We'd bring in sandwiches. We didn't have any stove or anything, but it kept us warm, a little trailer that kept us going and so stuff. So you could go inside and get some. We'd go in eat. there, run in there, and, of course, when they were going to come in and out for lunch, for breakfast, we'd be out there right in front of that gate, all in and out. You know what? I am so glad that we hung in there, and these people now, hopefully they can see that. We didn't waste our time. I thought for a while, you know, what is this going to accomplish, you know? What changed for the workers who did continue to work there? Anything? Well, the conditions improved, and then they got erased. We did. They did. You know, through all this, there was victory. And so they put some gravel, like she said. They did get a little bit erased. It wasn't a whole bunch. He isn't going to really do any more than he had to. But he did to just... Say I did something, you know, and but I, you know what? For me, I thought it was a good victory. We fought hard, and it was not easy. But I really thank the Lord that we were able to finish it the way we did. Thanks to the three of you for being with us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, thank you. Lupe Briseño, Marta de Real, and Rachel Sandoval were part of the Kitayama Carnation and Rose Strike in Denver 50 years ago. Since then, Kitayama has closed its Colorado facility. The company still operates in California, and we asked for a response to what happened. They sent us a statement. We respect labor's rights to organize and strike, but we don't have any comment regarding this long past event. Meantime, Denver's Sioux Teatro Theater Company hosts a gathering tonight to mark the last day of the strike. Tony Garcia is Sioux Teatro's artistic director. So much of the history of the Chicano and the Mexican-American in this state has been lost and has actually been pushed to the side. It is part of the mission of Sioux Teatro to carry those stories to the next generation. Tonight's event will feature a performance of War of the Flowers, which is part of the new production, Chicano Power 1969, The Birth of a Movement. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The new state attorney general, Phil Weiser, said Thursday he will not oppose Clarence Moses Eel's request to be exonerated. Moses Eel served more than 28 years in prison for a rape he didn't commit. He was released in 2015 and then acquitted of the charges. 
Moses Yale and his attorney Eric Klein spoke by phone with my colleague Anthony Cotton shortly after Weiser's decision. They began with Moses Yale's reaction to the news. You could say surprise and shock and a host of things because I woke up to, to this morning with phone calls with good news. So I've been in a very pleasant, relaxed state. So you had no idea that this was going to happen today? Not necessarily. I mean, the the response that I receive is what uh, I'm happy about. You know, I'm feeling so good about I, I'm elated about the attorney general's response, you know, his gesture. I'm, I'm, I'm just happy. I'm very elated about today and everything that I've heard thus far. Do you really now allow yourself to think it's done, it's over? Yes, I, I, I do. I, I feel that way. I came to that conclusion because in a real sense, it really feels like that, you know? Uh, it does. You've talked with us before about losing your dignity because of what you've gone through. Does today's news bring you closer to regaining it? Absolutely. Uh, that's another reason why I'm happy, uh, because it, it allows me to regain a lot of things that meant so much to me. So It was so dear to me that now having possession of these things again, it makes me feel like a, a full person. Have you been working since you've since your release? Are you have you become more comfortable with life on the outside? Absolutely. I'm comfortable. <laughs> uh when I look at where I came from and where I am, absolutely I'm comfortable. I've made my necessary adjustments. Uh, you know, I, I love living in free society uh, as a productive, positive citizen. According to the state law, which gives wrongly convicted individuals money for each year they were jailed, you'll be receiving about $2 million. The Attorney General, Phil Weiser, said you should be given the money because DNA evidence in the case was destroyed. The state of Colorado needs to provide compensation to Clarence Moses Eel because it destroyed the very evidence that could have established his innocence. Eric Klein, how much was lost in terms of the time Clarence was in jail because of the destroyed DNA? Well, the evidence was destroyed in 1995. And so if the evidence had been tested promptly and preserved, you know, he would have been out of prison 20 years before he actually got released. So he lost another 20 years of his life because of the destruction of that evidence. Although this case is settled, there are still pending lawsuits that have been filed against the city and county of Denver and the Denver District Attorney's Office, among others. Eric, how do you kind of meld the idea of holding everyone involved accountable, getting apologies, as well as the compensation? Well, I think you pointed out right. There's two separate issues here. One is just the compensation for the wrongful incarceration of an innocent man, and that's what's been resolved today. The other is an issue of holding people accountable for what happened to Mr. Moses Seal, and that's what's being addressed in the federal civil rights lawsuit is the violation of his constitutional rights. And you know that is about, you know, 
doing more than just compensating him. And, and I would say also, you know, the the compensation from the state suit is a great start. And we really appreciate Attorney General Weiser conceding this, recognizing Mr. Moses Eel's innocence and compensating him. But what's been what's going to be received from the state compensation statute really can't even begin to compensate for spending almost three decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And we feel that the people who are responsible for that should be held accountable and there should be something to disincentivize government actors in the future to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Clarence, what's the most important thing that you want to receive from this? Well, I, I've, I've received the most important thing that I have fought for all these years, and that is my freedom and acknowledgement that uh, I was wrongly convicted and a mistake was made. And so now um, being able to stand not just in the shadow, but in the reality of freedom itself, that is the most that would be paramount to me. And that is Clarence Moses Eel and his attorney Eric Klein speaking with my colleague Anthony Cotton. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced he will not oppose Moses Eel's petition for exoneration. Moses Eel served nearly three decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He'll receive almost $2 million from the state as a result. A bill making it easier to remove guns temporarily from someone who's a danger to themselves or others is now up for consideration in the state legislature. The so-called red flag measure was introduced Thursday on the first anniversary of the Parkland school shooting in Florida. Democratic State Representative Tom Sullivan of Centennial is one of the bill's main sponsors. His son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora theater shooting. The opportunity to push for stricter gun laws is one reason Sullivan decided to run in 2018. We spoke shortly after he was elected to his first term. Welcome to the program. Thank you. At what point would you say politics first entered your mind? Probably around Thanksgiving time of 2015. Trial was over. So then it was, what's the next step? You know what? I need to talk more than the 90 seconds that they allow me to. I have to make sure that I can do more than a letter to the editor. I need to be out in front. And so then it was, who do I got to talk to? Because I'm going to run for one of these seats. It was about having your voice heard. Having my voice heard and speaking for the people that I felt weren't being heard. Survivors, victims, parents, sons, daughters. And if their voices weren't being heard, why was that? Were they being drowned out? Were they not being listened to? Being ignored. You know, I would go down to the state capitol. They can maybe look at us for that day when we're there to testify. But then the other 119 days, they didn't have to bother. Well, now you know what? You're going to have to have to see me for 120 days because I'm going to be there every day. That's the length of the session in Colorado. Tell me a little bit about Alex, maybe a few of your favorite memories. Oh, he was my best friend. Um, You know, you just could share everything with him. And he had, you know, he had some of my qualities, but he had, you know, all of his, all of his best qualities were from his mom, you know, empathy, (laughs) compassion, all of that. So, and it was always so great to be with him because 
he had such a memory of places we had been, and he would always be able to remember everybody's names and like remember their, you know, their moms or their dad's names and stuff. So I would never have to because if you were with him, he would always be the one that could could tell you everybody's name. So if you just, you know, that's why you stayed with him was like, he'll help you. I have to think that you will carry these memories, these images with you to the floor of the house. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Speaking of the legislature, the focus of gun control efforts last year in the state capitol was a red flag bill uh, that would give judges the power to order someone's guns confiscated temporarily if they were shown to pose an immediate danger to themselves or others. That bill failed. You've said it is your top priority this year. Uh, This is a session in which Democrats will now have total control. Why do you believe in these firearms restraining orders? It saves lives. That's what this is all about. Suicide by gun is our number one reason for, you know, deaths here in the state of Colorado by by firearm. They are the ones who get harmed in this. You actually think of this as a bill that combats suicide as much as it does externalized violence. We had over 800 deaths last year in the state of Colorado by firearm. Over 600 of those were suicides. The extreme things like what happened to us, any of these shootings that happen, you know, downtown or, you know, domestic violence things, those are the extraordinary type things. Do you hope to name the bill for your son? No. No, I mean, because I, I'm, I'm not quite sure that this bill would have had anything to do with preventing what, what happened to Alex and the other 11 people that uh, were murdered in the theater that day. I mean, this was there was a lot of clandestine stuff that was going on that there were people who were who should have been aware and should have done something about it to the very end there where the doctor uh, from the Anschutz Center from CU Medical called his mother and told her that there was a problem. You're talking about James Holmes, and and he had been under some psychiatric care leading up to the shooting. He was a student at Anschutz. It's fascinating for you to say that this bill is important to you, but it might not have changed the outcome. Right. I mean, it's not about me. It's about the community that I live in. When we had Alex's funeral, it was at St. Michael's, and you could not squeeze another person in there. They were out in parking lots. I, when it, it, it was time to give Alex's eulogy, I walked up onto that stage and I said, give me a moment. And I kind of stood back and I looked from one end of the crowd all the way across to the other. And I mean, you know, the governor was there. The mayor was there. Um, the chief of police, Alex's friends were there. The first responders were all there. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know how and I don't know when. I said, but I will find a way to thank each and every one of these people who are here this day, who have been supportive of my family, who've shown us the empathy and compassion for us to be able to get through this. And I think this is how I can do it. Critics of the red flag bill make several arguments. I mean, they fear that it's open to abuse, that you could have somebody with an axe to grind, go to a judge and get somebody's gun taken away when it really isn't warranted. Uh, They also contend there's a constitutional argument that it might violate the Second Amendment. What would you say to that? 
That's why we're having the discussion. It needs to be written in such a way that people will actually use it the way that it's supposed to be used. We, we know we passed the ban on high-capacity magazines. And while we were in the Capitol passing that, there was a group of sheriffs standing outside that said, we're not going to follow it. We don't believe what that law says. So we need to craft this in such a way that everybody can do it. And, we're looking, and that you have the buy-in. Right, that you have the buy-in of everybody. It's interesting, the Republican that you defeated in the race had co-sponsored last year's red flag bill. Uh, the conservative Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association campaigned against his reelection. They said that he voted like a gun-grabbing Democrat. In 2013, when Democrats passed gun control laws in response to the theater shooting, two of their members were recalled. Do you fear that some Democrats may hesitate to support legislation like this because they are sensitive to not overreaching with their majority. The conversations that I have been having with different members and, you know, lobbyists, people in the community, this is what we are going to do. And this is not an overreach. They've polled it two different times. It's somewhere between 75 and 85 percent of the people in Colorado back a system like the extreme risk protection order. So we were elected to go in there and govern. And that's what we're going to do. The prosecutor in the Aurora shooting case, George Brockler, sought the death penalty for the shooter. But the jury sentenced him to life in prison. A bill to abolish the death penalty in Colorado is defeated in 2017. It could surface again this year. Where are you on that? I am a no vote on the flat out repeal. There's a lot of things wrong with it, but believe and with I with the death penalty. I, with the death penalty, we know all of uh, and I would love to work with them on getting it fixed. It has to be the hardest thing for us to be able to come to a conclusion on. By all uh, measurements, that's already true in Colorado. There are so few people executed in this state. I'm not sure how many times they bring it up. I'm not, you know, maybe it doesn't need to come up, you know, that often. And maybe that's an, uh, a reason someone said, well, we don't use it now. Why should we have it? You know, that's like, well, you know, why do you have the car in the garage? You know, you, you take the bus every day. Maybe sometime I might have to. So, you know, go ahead and, and, and leave the car there. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Democrat Tom Sullivan represents State House District 37, which includes Centennial. We spoke in December, shortly after his election. This week, Sullivan introduced a red flag bill, making it easier to remove guns temporarily from people deemed a danger to themselves or others. You heard me ask whom the bill would be named after. In the end, it's named for Zach Parrish. He's the Douglas County Sheriff's deputy killed by a mentally ill man on New Year's Eve 2017. On a clear summer day in 1989, United Flight 232 left Denver Stapleton Airport. It was bound for Chicago O'Hare, but never made it. An hour after takeoff, the plane's hydraulic system failed, and the pilots had to make an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. Many died, but even more survived. A stage play about the disaster makes its regional premiere tonight at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. CPR's Alexandra McMahon attended a dress rehearsal with a special guest. 
My name is Susan White. I was a flight attendant working Flight 232. There were 296 people on board. Susan White is one of 184 survivors. We attended one of the final dress rehearsals for the Catamounts presentation of United Flight 232. But the show's director wanted to keep White's presence a secret from the cast. I'm so excited that you're here, but we're going to do the interview out here because I haven't told the cast that you're coming tonight. Um, They told me that they are really excited to meet all of the people that they portray, but they don't want to know in advance. They only want to know after you've already seen the show. That's director Amanda Berg-Wilson. She describes the play as being less about a plane crash and more about how people take care of each other. It's just a reminder in moments of crisis, we have that in us. And so if we can do it in moments of crisis, why not do it in moments where we're not in crisis? <laughs> Berg Wilson was sitting with White in, in the lobby at the Dairy Center. And that, that you and your, um, your fellow crew members are, were folks out there doing their job. And that that, can, you know, continuing to do your job even in the worst possible moment is so comforting to me. And this piece is really about people who helped one another. So anyway, I don't want to cry. (laughs) I love that you said that about um, people helping people because that day I witnessed so many um, strangers, passengers helping other passengers get out and the rescue workers just, you know, coming and doing whatever they could just to help all these strangers and the people of Sioux City with so many people that offered I can take you home we didn't have enough hotel rooms and this lady she said you're welcome to come home to my house and it is a warm a warm feeling to know Mm -hmm. that people are genuinely they I think they are good people Mm -hmm. and and you're right and right now is a a perfect time for a reminder of that Mm -hmm. The play has come home, in a sense. It initially premiered in Chicago in 2016, which happened to be the plane's intended destination back in 1989. Berg Wilson says when they started production in Boulder, they received overwhelming support from the community. As soon as they hear that we're doing it, they have a connection to somebody who is on the flight. It feels like mathematically impossible to me how many people are like, oh, I knew so-and-so, or I had a man come into my office, um, to the Catamount's office, and he was holding a postcard, and he said, is, is this you? Are you doing this? And he said, my aunt and my uncle and my cousin were on the flight. I think that because it took off from Stapleton, there's just more people in this here in Colorado who have a connection to somebody who was on the flight. It won't be the first time White has seen the play. She and much of the flight crew saw the show in Chicago. While the whole experience is emotional, she says there's one part that is especially difficult to watch. There was a part just um, dealing with um, one of the passengers. I get emotional. I'm thinking about it now. But um, Cindy, who passed away, and I'm, I'm still in contact with her sister to this day, and... It's very, it's very emotional, and I'm emotional right now, so I know I'll, I'll be teary-eyed thinking about it, just watching that. I'm not sure if that's in there or is it in there. Okay, yeah. In the scene, the actor portraying White comforts the passenger, Cindy, who is hysterically crying. They pray together, and White manages to calm her down. After the dress rehearsal, Berg Wilson announced to the whole cast that White was in the audience. Oh, wow. 
you guys did a great job. I just I feel so honored to We're so honored. Yeah, and Amanda, she said she didn't want anyone to know. As things quieted down, Berg Wilson asked what White thought of the Catamount's presentation. It was very emotional. I mean, you could really feel what someone is going through when they're faced with death. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, well, you guys did a great job. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming to our... Very, very impressed. Very impressed. I might feel honored to be here. White introduced herself to every cast member and shared details about the people they portray. But she spent extra time with the three actors portraying her and her colleagues, telling them she's still a flight attendant to this day. Yeah, 33 years I've been flying. Wow. wow. You know, I feel very blessed. And yeah, absolutely. Every day, and every day I'm reminded of it, not in a, not in a morbid way, to, but always just to be grateful. That's and I'm good. Uh, Cindy, the gal that I prayed with, unfortunately didn't make it, yeah. but I'm, I'm friends with her sister, Pam. Oh, wow. I think about her a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Anyway, anyway, but a lot of um, a lot of good came from it, and yeah. we always think about all those that didn't make it. That was, you know, they're always in our our prayers and yeah. thoughts. But you guys, you did such a good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Oh gosh, I'm happy. I'm so. I'm just very thankful that I'm here. Thank you. Well, nice meeting you, too. (laughs) United Flight 232 runs at the Dairy Arts Center through March 9th. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Finally today, the mystical call of tarot is something Emmy Brady has felt for decades. In fact, the Denver artist doesn't shy away from calling it an obsession. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf looks at how Brady's fascination drove her to create her own tarot cards. Emmy Brady says she's toyed with the idea of making her own deck for more than a decade, but she wasn't ready until more recently. Technically, I wasn't ready, and I think emotionally I wasn't ready. And I think the tarot really is about having a depth of knowledge and compassion for yourself and for others. And I would just, I wasn't there. She released her own deck, the Brady Tarot, last year. Many academics and historians say tarot cards were initially used to play games and evolved to hold mystical significance in their vivid imagery. Artists who create decks like Brady bring their own visuals and even interpretations to the cards. People can come to a reading with specific questions or general curiosities that address broader aspects of life. Brady's deck of 78 handcrafted cards features animals and plants native to North America. Really one of the most important things that I want people to take away from this deck is that animals have rich inner lives and we're not alone on this planet. She seems particularly drawn to birds, evident in the sun card. It has two gold finches perched on sunflowers, a sun-like orb beaming above them. Brady tells me the card signifies happiness. The light of the sun illuminates all, and so you get to see things as they are. Another card, the Six of Arrows, shows a great horned owl with a leash tied to its leg. Six arrows puncture the leash. Brady says that represents the baggage we all carry. Yet the bird is still able to fly. Brady was 13 when she was introduced to tarot. 
She was initially taken by the artistry of the cards, but soon she became hooked on the practice. Just all the different ways that it can speak to you and all the different ways it can help guide you. Brady bought her first deck when she was about 21. It was the Hindel Tarot by late German artist and author Hermann Hindel. Brady dispels the idea that tarot cards predict the future. She says it's more about gaining a deeper understanding of yourself. I get to reevaluate myself and reevaluate what's happening in my life and, and the best ways that I can move forward from here. She says readings help her answer both personal and artistic questions. I use the tarot to almost get permission sometimes to not make work which I think is just as important as making art. Her own deck is her biggest undertaking as an artist. She used a printmaking method called linocut. With specialized tools, she etched intricate designs into sheets of linoleum, one for every card. There's so much detail in each card. It took her 16 months to carve, print, and color all of them, working on them nearly every day. Making the Brady Tarot became as much of an obsession for the artist as her initial fascination with the practice that drove her to create it. I love how I can lose myself in it, and I find the process of carving to be very meditative. She hopes her deck can be a gateway into tarot for others. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Was the godfather of soul murdered? CNN raised that question recently in a big investigation. James Brown died in 2006. And the CNN report got us thinking about his unusual connection to Colorado. There is something here named after him. Do you know what it is? In Steamboat Springs, there is the James Brown Soul Center of the Universe Bridge. It was dedicated in 1993, and the move was controversial, according to Tom Ross. He's the former editor of the Steamboat Pilot and Today. And we spoke in 06 when Brown passed away. There were definitely people who thought because of his personal life, his name wasn't appropriate to be associated with Steamboat Springs. I think a lot of it really was just a sincere desire to see a name on that bridge that was more endemic to the Yampa Valley and, and the tradition of agriculture here and ranching. It was specifically Brown's criminal record that made some Steamboat residents leery. One of the comments we had was, James Brown is a convicted wife-beater and known drug addict. But as you can tell from the, the public vote, there were just as many people who thought It was a good way to acknowledge diversity in a little town that doesn't have much diversity to this day. When the bridge was dedicated in 93, Brown came to Steamboat Springs. And CPR's digital editor Jim Hill shared a recording that he's kept from the day Brown was on a local radio station in Steamboat as a guest DJ. This is setting an honor and a a groove, and it's just a loving affair, and I feel good. Ow! Yeah, I must got a brand new bridge! That bridge meant more to me than just endorsing it. It meant a lifetime of hard work and seeing it pay off. You showed it today with your love. You're beautiful people. You don't know how beautiful you are. You know, I hope you live 200 years, and I live 200 years minus one day. So I'll never know people like people in a steamboat that passed away. God bless you. Out of here. Ciao. Can I take him to the bridge? Go ahead. Take him on to the bridge. Take him to the bridge. Can I take him to the bridge? And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.